Yes. All right. Well, unshakable has been our title, and uh, we've been going through the book of Daniel. And Daniel has certainly been that, hasn't he? An unshakable believer. What an example to each of us living in our uh, in the world we live in today. How much we need to be unshakable believers. Dan, we're going to try to finish the book of Daniel to this morning, lesson thirteen. We're going to try to uh, go through. Daniel chapter 11 and 12. We're going to got to breeze through this. But uh, I think we're going to get a lot out of today's lesson. But I hope it's a blessing to each one of us. Let me start with this, though, this morning. Do you like, do you like uh, puzzles? You know, 500-piece, 1,000-piece, you know, 1,500-piece. Some of the crazy people. Yeah, yeah actually, I would, see, uh, I would see my mom lay those things out there. She liked doing puzzles. And I would see her just lay all those, you know, thousands of pieces out on the table. And I would wonder why she would spend time pouring over every little tiny piece. I could not see the enjoyment in that. But then I tried it. And it hooks you. It gets you. And you didn't even see it coming. At least for a few minutes it gets you until you just, I, I give up. I can't do it. But uh, people who do puzzles uh, regularly, I'm convinced they're thrill seekers. <laughs> Those people are thrill seekers. They're addicted to a thrill. You think about it. They're addicted to this thrill of finding that piece. Finding that piece that fits. And it's like this little shot of dopamine that goes in them when they, when they get that piece in that spot. And ultimately putting that last piece in that's the part I always want to do but uh, but that last piece and boy what a good feeling that is to see the whole picture and it's it is unexplainably satisfying now that is the thrill of biblical prophecy it's a, it is a complicated it is it is huge there are a lot of pieces but once you fully just engage in the puzzle it's, you start to see the pieces fit, and one after another, you begin to piece them together, and it opens up into this grand picture of what God has planned for the future. And we all know Christians, I think, who have taken this maybe a little too far. And this, I mean, we, we want to love prophecy. We want to love what God has put in His Word. But unfortunately, that's all they see in life. Everything's about Bible prophecy, and that's the only thing they think of, and everything they read, it's... That's the only thing in their heads. And that's not healthy. It's not healthy with any topic in the Bible. The Bible's full of different kinds of teaching. But we do need a good handle on general Bible prophecy, all of us, because it is the Word of God. And I want everybody, just as we begin here today, just to remember a promise that is given to everyone who loves the appearing of Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, this is a reward, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, the Apostle Paul says. And not to me only, but unto all them that also love his appearing. There is a special reward for those who are looking for the appearing of Christ, who can't wait to see Jesus, who see the signs and are excited about that one day when Jesus comes back. So we do need to be engaged into Bible prophecy. All of us, we need to have a good understanding 
of it. So all, all this talk about prophecy and everything that we look at today should really just always point us and get us to the strong passion of seeing Jesus face to face. It's not just about putting a puzzle together and every little piece. It's about the end of the puzzle. It's about the picture of us seeing Jesus. And that's the heart that we all should have. We don't know everything. But we need to know enough to love His appearing. And it's thrilling when the pieces do come together. Now, now the, there are very few chapters in the entire Bible that will give you this kind of a thrill, this kind of uh, bringing together a masterpiece like Daniel chapter 11. But it is very complicated. And if, but if you take the time to pour over every single verse and how each of those verses was fulfilled in history, it will make you feel like you've just completed a, a masterpiece from the Lord. In fact, if you took the Bible in one hand and a history book in the other, you would start to wonder, if you're, as you're reading Daniel chapter 11, you, 11, you'd start to wonder which is which. <laughs> it reads like it, it has already happened. And yet it was, it was prophesied before that, that actually ever happened. It kind of reads all the stuff that takes place in, from uh, verse 1 all the way to verse 34. All takes place a several hundred years after the time of Daniel. And yet Daniel is getting all these prophecies. Some say it's probably the most specific prophecies in all the Bible in this chapter. And it plays out like a soap opera. And then when you actually read history you see it all come together. There are marriages between nations to secure peace. There are murders between kings and monarchs. There are those who held power and then lost power. And Daniel lays out who gets power and who loses power, and it's all in exact order. Cleopatra is even referred to in, in Daniel chapter 11, not by name, but you see it later play out in history as she was sort of a pawn in this game. And again, they say this chapter is so specific, it's one of the most specific in the entire Bible. But again, it's complex. And if I tried to walk us through every single verse, I got to tell you, it would take us weeks to do that, okay? And it might feel like you're actually watching somebody do a puzzle. <laughs> it's one thing to do a puzzle, it's another thing to watch somebody else do the puzzle. And, uh, and, and, and plus my daughter, Lindsay, she, she says, don't do all this history stuff, Dad. It's just, I, I, I can't take it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> she, I'm just kidding. She loves me. <laughs> so instead, what I've chosen to do is given you a couple tools here. Now, in your notes, if you've got them there, I give you a couple tools. I give you a graph, and I give you given you an outline. First, uh, the outline. Uh, let me show you this outline real quick. Uh, I have it in there. But Daniel chapter 11 and chapter 12 just quickly outlined it for you. There are prophecies about Persia in verses one and two. Prophecies about Greece, prophecies about the kings of the north and the south, prophecies about Antiochus Epiphanes and Syria, and then we move into the prophecies about the time of tribulation. Now, so up to this point, up to verse 35, these are things that have already happened. They hadn't happened when Daniel got these prophecies, but now today they've already happened. From verse 36 on, it's still yet to happen, even for us. And so those are the parts we're going to really focus on today. And... Um, and those are the times of the tribulation, the prophecies about the kingdom, and then final instructions to Daniel in the last part of chapter 12. Now, let me show you the graph real quick that you have there in your notes as well. This is, if this looks complicated, it's because it kind of is. And, and the chapter kind of is. But if you take this with you and begin to read it, it begins to uh, 
unfold a little bit for you. So what this person did was very, I think this was the best one I saw. They put the chapter and verse along with the person that that verse is talking about. Because in Daniel chapter 11, there's not exact names. But then as you start to read the history books and you see what unfolds, here are the names of those people. And then you realize, wow, this fits with exactly what Daniel said would happen. And it just keeps happening, keeps happening. And this is why critics have such a hard time with the book of Daniel. Uh, they say it, never, it, it could not have been written in the past. It had to have been written after these things happened. And they say, we say, no, it is God's word and it's God's perfect word. And so anyway, if you track it along this way, it's probably your best chance of getting to understand. I also gave you a suggestion there. I would suggest to go to blueletterbible.org and just type that in. All sorts of great little tools will help with the study of this as well, okay? It's an, exciting, it's an exciting thing to track and see how all those prophecies come to pass. But as we move on, here's the one big question. If these prophecies that were given to Daniel have already been fulfilled so perfectly, will the prophecies that have yet to come, the things that have yet to happen, will they be as equally accurate? The answer is yes. That means everything that we're about to talk about is going to happen, and it's going to happen exactly as God says it's going to happen. It, in fact, as what we're about to discuss is not just the future, it's pre-written history. <laughs> it's history that God has already placed in the Bible. And by the way, God knows, God knows the future better than we know the history. So let's skip to the verses that we're going to begin to talk about that are still in our future. And specifically, the angel, we know, as we saw in Daniel chapter 10, this angel comes to talk to Daniel. He's going to reveal all these truths to Daniel. And he's specifically going to talk about what happens in the 70th week. Daniel had been crying out and praying for more details on this end time that God had laid out. The 70th week, these seven years of major trouble for Israel. The verses right before it talk about Antiochus Epiphanes. As we had mentioned before, he was the preview of that ultimate king that was going to come someday against the Jewish people. This ultimate king that was going to come, this guy at the very end of time, in fact, he would be the final world leader. The final world leader. And he, he goes by several names in the Bible, but the most common name in the Bible is the Antichrist. And Daniel begins to get a description of what this Antichrist will be like. And that's where we're going to pick up the prophecy, verse 36 of Daniel chapter 11, okay? And the king, this is talking about the Antichrist, and the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods. And shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. So the Antichrist will be a king or a world leader. Who is controlled by Satan, by the way. The, the book of Revelation tells us that. And it says here that he has those exact traits that the devil has. He is self-focused. He is all about himself and he will only exalt himself. He will prosper for a while, it says in this verse. And the, the world is going to love this man who comes. They're going to be drawn in by his salesmanship and his displays of power. People are going to say, wow, this is an amazing guy. 
But as the end of this verse tells us, ultimately he will only be able to do what God has predetermined to be done. The sovereign God is going to allow uh, all this to take place that we're about to read because it's time for God to judge the earth. And so even though this Antichrist thinks he's in control and thinks he has all the power, it's actually God that's allowing this to happen. So he goes on to describe the Antichrist. Verse 37, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. So these are some descriptions, and these are details that Christians will need to know, especially those Christians uh, in the generation who have to deal with this person. Is, he, is the Antichrist alive right now? We don't know. Maybe he is. Maybe he's not. But here are a couple details that the Bible brings out about him. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. Now some say that means that the Antichrist is probably going to be Jewish, meaning he's disregarding the God of Israel. But that really could just mean that he's disregarding religious tradition in general. Well, whatever God his family came from, he's just going to disregard that God. And then it says, nor the desire of women. He doesn't regard the desire of women. Some have said that that means this Antichrist that's coming is going to be a homosexual. But actually, more likely, what this refers to is just another term for the Messiah. Here's what it means. See, every Jewish woman in the Old Testament had the desire to give birth to the Messiah. So the desire of women was to give birth to the the coming king that would someday come to the nation of Israel. So this is actually just a reference to the Messiah. So it would be like him saying, this man is not going to regard the Messiah at all. He has no regard for the Messiah. He's definitely, though, an atheist. Look what he says. It says, nor regard for any God. Any God. See, when you, you realize that this Antichrist that's coming is going to be Uh, what some might call a secularist. Some have said, well, if he is a Jewish person, he's a Jewish person that's uh, an an atheist Jew, which there are some of those people who say, I'm I'm from a Jewish tradition, but I'm actually an atheist. But there are people like that in all kinds of religions now. They're coming out of, in fact, it's popular to come out of religions altogether. Some call them secularists. And that's what it sounds like to me. The Antichrist is going to be a secularist, meaning there's no place for religion in politics or in society or in, or in just in life. There's no place for religion at all. I mean, this man is probably raised in a religious home and then just rejects every form of religion. I want to think about that for just a minute. As we look at the time that we live in and the things we go, we're going through, You can see now more than ever probably in history how a person like that could be honored. Our culture just gets more and more anti-religious. In fact, they call it, there's been a lot of articles out there, they're calling it the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. People who are asked, what religion are you? And they mark none. Nuns, the rise of the nuns. There's a lot of people coming up. They're saying, "I, I, I just don't. I don't believe I need to be a part of any religion. Europe already is very post-Christian. And we're going there quickly ourselves. 
The, the newest and the youngest generations coming up, they're just not ad- identifying with any religion. A secularist. And you can see how the Antichrist would be a perfect person to come and just lead this new group of people all over the world. Verse, verse 38. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. So here, even an atheist has some kind of God. (laughs) Even an atheist worships something. The only God that the Antichrist will have are are the gods of forces, are the God of force and military might. This is what he's all about. He'll be all about conquering the world, all about bringing everybody under his control, the whole entire world. Every nation, that's what he, that, is, that is his main goal. He will do it by force. He will do it through peace treaties. He will do it through political favors to people. Whatever works best for him, he's going to try to unite everybody under his control. Now, and once they submit to his leadership and honor him, he's going to begin to give them allotments of land. And that's what this next verse indicates. Look at verse 39. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. Sure, I'll give you that. And he shall cause them to rule over many. Sure, I'll give you that rulership. And shall divide the land for gain. So he divides the land for gain. And then after he has a whole host of nations on his side, the next few verses describe a time at the end of the tribulation where a few nations will come against him to fight. He's trying to get everybody under him, but there's still a few nations that are holdouts, and they're going to come to battle him. And there will be all these battles that start to take place at the end of this seven-year period. I'm going to read through several verses now, starting in verse 40. And at the time of the end, so that's an indication of where we're headed, shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. And he shall enter also into the glorious land, that is Palestine. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. Now it's going to be very fascinating to see how all this plays out on earth. God's telling or the angel is telling Daniel exactly how uh, which nations are going to be overthrown, which which nations won't be and uh, the battle that's going to take place. But thankfully, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ right now, we're going to get a front row seat from heaven. (laughs) We don't have to be in the middle of all this. We're going to see all this take place on the earth. Now watch this, verse 44. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him, will trouble the Antichrist. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. Here's a quick summary of this. 
of all this. As nations begin to fight him, everybody's coming against him. He's fighting against it. He defeats them. And so he begins to enter Palestine, the Middle East, Israel, all the area there. And he's going to have some trouble with some of the Arab nations. We saw that. Moab and Edom and things like that. Some of them will be escape, will escape, but some will be conquered. Then he's going to hear of more enemies from the east and from the north. This huge coalition of forces that's going to start to come against him. Perhaps, now think about this, perhaps the north could be referring to Russia. East could be referring to China. You think about the forces, the amount of forces in Russia and China alone. And so perhaps he's hearing those forces getting together and coming against him to fight, uh, fight him. So what is he going to do? You can imagine how large this army would be. In fact, there's other places in Scripture that tell us it could be 20 million plus. There would be this epic battle that begins to take place as he, as he starts to move into the area in between the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and the mountain of Jerusalem. And he's going to come into there, and this is going to be the meeting place for all these other nations to come, and they're all going to meet there to fight. This battle that's going to take place is called the Battle of Armageddon. And in verse 45, it says the Antichrist will meet his end in that battle, and none shall be able to help him. He shall come to his end, and none shall be able to help him. Why? Because we, and we know in the book of Revelation what John says. Because at that moment, at the battle of Armageddon, Jesus is going to come back and end it. Jesus is going to come and he is going to take away the Antichrist. He's going to defeat the Antichrist. It's going to be the end of that 70th week. It's going to be the end of that seven-year period. And then Jesus is going to usher in his kingdom for a thousand years on the earth. The Antichrist will think he's greater than anyone who's ever lived. He's bringing all this stuff. He's boasting about everything, bringing all these... Nations under him, he's fighting and battling, thinking he's going to win. And for a moment there, everybody will think he's right. He's, he's, he's the winner. The whole Christian thing, everything that we're hearing is wrong. He's the, he seems to be the world power. It'll look very bad for Christians as they're being persecuted. All hope will seem gone. But God will just laugh. Amen. <laughs> Remember what it says in Psalm 2. I'm going to show this to you. Psalm chapter 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's what people are doing right now. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. See, Jesus is the ultimate winner in this massive battle of Armageddon. And you know, we're going to be there with him as well. Anybody who's a believer is going to come back with Jesus at that time when he sets up the kingdom, when he defeats this huge army, defeats the Antichrist and ushers in the kingdom. I can't help but think about some of our state and some of our nation and some of our world leaders today, when I think about some of this. They just have such an arrogance. They think they're so far above the little God that the Christians serve. The little God that he really has no power, we're the ones calling the shots. Sounds like our president. 
And I just think then of this verse we just read. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. These leaders of this world right now, the people who we think are so powerful, what do they look like to God? I almost think like they just look like yapping little chihuahuas, you know? (laughs) No offense to chihuahuas. (laughs) He's just waiting. He's just waiting until he gets irritated enough to kick them out of his yard, you know, like you would a chihuahua. I can't take it anymore. I'm done with you. And God knows when that's going to happen. He's not, he's not worried. He's not stressed. God's not, God's not uh, surprised by anything. He is in control. And he's, he has a time to come back. The point here is the Antichrist loses and Jesus wins. But he's going to cause a lot of trouble in those seven years, that Antichrist. Now in chapter 12, it's going to give us a little more detail about the period of the tribulation. The seven-year time. The 70th week that Daniel had been told about before. In particular, the focus is on Israel here. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up. The great prince, the angel we know. The great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. This is Michael, the angel assigned to protect Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time, thy people, Daniel, Israel, shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. This is described here as a time of trouble. Or in Jeremiah chapter 30, it's it's called the time of Jacob's trouble, or Israel's trouble. Jesus Specifically, what he named it in Matthew chapter 24 is the Great Tribulation. This is going to be the worst time, as it says, in history. It will be the worst time to be alive ever. The Jewish people have always seemed like they've experienced bad times, haven't they? But Jesus said it will be nothing like this. It will be nothing like this time. The human suffering, the death, and distress of people will be unparalleled during this great tribulation. If Michael didn't come and help, as it says here, the angel, uh, if he didn't come and help, they would be completely annihilated, the the people of Israel. Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 8 says that two-thirds of the Jews will die during the tribulation. The only ones who will be delivered are those whose names are in the book. (laughs) Those whose names are found written in the book. And we know what book he's talking about, don't we? The book of life, the book of Revelation talks about. Now, this doesn't mean that believers in the tribulation won't face persecution and pain. But it does mean that they will be delivered eternally. And I think also it's saying that God is going to be with them in their moments of pain. Imagine, though, what an encouragement this verse must have been, or it will be. For those believers who are in the tribulation period at that moment. Imagine them opening up a Bible when they're about to face some of the greatest persecution they've ever seen or heard of. Maybe they're about to get killed. Maybe something's going to happen. Maybe a father opens up the Bible in his home and reads this to his family. They will be delivered. Everyone that shall be found written in the book. Kids, we've trusted in Jesus and our names are in the book. So no matter what happens right now, no matter what's about to happen, we're going to be safe in the hands of God. Death 
is not the end for them. Verse 2, look what it says. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now this verse makes it as clear as it can be in the Bible that every person lives forever. Ever, either an everlasting life or an everlasting contempt. This is speaking of the doctrine of the resurrection. The fact that all humans will be resurrected. Their bodies will be resurrected. Saved or unsaved. Now here's the quick resurrection rundown. You ready for this? I have a timeline there. It's on your papers as well. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, the Bible said. He's the first one. And because he rose from the dead, what a great time to be talking about this, right around Easter. Because he rose bodily from the dead, we are going to raise bodily from the dead. So he's the first fruits. He's the first one. Next is the people at the rapture. And those all living saints and all those who are saved during the time of Christ and during the church age will meet the Lord in the air. We look for Jesus right now. We don't look for the Antichrist. We're not focused on when the anti- where's the Antichrist? Where's the Antichrist? No, we're fo- where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? That's what the God wants to have our focus. The Bible seems to indicate then that the Old Testament saints and the saints who died during the tribulation, those who got saved during the tribulation, will resurrect after the tribulation. After those seven years, they will be resurrected during Christ's second coming. And that's when this sheep and goats judgment of all the survivors, the sheep being the surviving Christians that were saved during the tribulation, the goats being the unsaved survivors of the tribulation. And those will be separated, Jesus said, one on one side and one on the other. And all the unsaved... From all time past, will we reserve for this great white throne judgment, which will take place after the thousand year millennium or the reign of Christ on the earth. So you have some that are raised for, uh, to eternal life before the millennium. That's the believers. And you have some raised to eternal damnation after the millennium and, and during the judgment. That's what this verse is referring to. So here's the deal. The person next to you, is an eternal being. So is the person at the grocery store and your coworkers. Everybody you see, they're not just flesh and bone. All of us, all of us are eternal beings. And we're going to be resurrected one day to either live in heaven or live in hell. And look what Daniel is told next, verse 3. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they, shall turn, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Remember, we're talking about what's going on during the tribulation right now. The seven year time of trouble. And during those years, there will be some who will be wise. Those are the people who get saved. They turn to Christ. And then many of them will begin to turn others to righteousness. And the Bible teaches that Even though Jesus is raptured, or the word rapture means snatched, Jesus snatches out all those saved people prior, but these saved people during are going to do their job. Many of them will do their job, and they're going to keep going and face major persecution. But oh, so many will be wise, and they'll begin turning others to righteousness. In fact, the Great Tribulation is a time of great evangelism. Think about what will be happening. The 
Christians disappearing and other apocalyptic things happening all over the place. Real quick, let me put this up for you. Why would God send a great tribulation on the earth? Why would God do this? Well, three reasons at least. One, to wake up unbelievers. Many are going to be saved during the tribulation. In fact, it's like, just like a, it's just like a bigger two-by-four across somebody's head. Uh, wake up. This is your last chance. You've got seven years here. Haven't you seen what's going on? You need to get saved. And then to shake up the nation of Israel, the, uh, what is left of Israel in the end will turn to Christ. And, verse, and then or number three is to make up the kingdom of God. Christ is going to set up his thousand-year reign. Now the focus shifts real quickly as we end here to what Daniel is supposed to do. Verse 4. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Shut up the words and seal the book. This means to write it, Daniel, and preserve it for the time of the end. Write it up. Preserve it. Make sure it's there for those people someday. Because there's coming a day when people will run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. Now some things think that just refers to the time of the end. It's just a sign of the time, end times. And to an extent maybe that might be true, but here's more specifically what it probably means. It means that in the end times, the people who are actually going through this, the stuff that we're talking about, are going to be running to and fro looking for answers. And the knowledge of what's going on is going to be increased. And the knowledge of the prophecies will be increased. It, the puzzle will begin to make more sense. In, in other words, Daniel, you need to write this and preserve this, especially for the generation of people who are going to face the tribulation. Because they're going to need the answers and it will make more sense to them because of their knowledge of what's going on and what they're seeing. Let's admit it. Today we have a very limited knowledge of what's going to happen. These prophecies are somewhat clear, but they're not fully clear yet. And we just can't quite see perfectly how it all fits together. But someday, those people that are facing it, who see the Antichrist, who hear him on the TV, and who read about him in the news, and who are living through these things, they're the ones who are going to need the book of Daniel more than any other generation. We need it now, but they're going to need it even more. But I would say right now we're closer than ever. This is the end of the end times. Think about how the church shutdown has related to the stories of the laws that were passed to Daniel. Or to not pray for 30 days. How close is that to what we've already seen here? Or the uh, do not bow down to this or don't you have to bow down to this idol or we're going to throw you in the in the fiery furnace. Perhaps our generation or the next generation is the one that may need this book. Jesus could come back at any time. And by the way, that's why we have Bibles sealed in the walls of all these buildings that we've built. Because <laughs> someday when these buildings fall down, somebody during the tribulation might be looking and they might find that Bible and they might open up to the book of Daniel. And all of it might begin to come clear and they're going to give their hearts to the Lord and know that they need to wait, wait this out and just keep trusting the Lord. Seal them up. We've sealed them in the walls. If this is going to happen, everybody, the, the pieces fit in perfectly in history, and they're going to fit perfectly in the future. Let's end this. And then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, the one on this side of the bank of the river, the one on that side of the bank of the river, 
And one said to the man clothed in linen, this is angels talking, which was upon the waters of the river, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? Verse 7, And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand up to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, it shall be for time, times, and a half. And when he shall have accomplished, that's three and a half years, and when he shall have accomplished the, to scatter the power of thy people, all these things shall be finished. He answers the question, three and a half years of tribulation, that's the second half of the great tribulation. And at the end, all the Jews, those people who are left, who've been chasing after all other things, God's going to remove their power, and they're going to come back to Christ. And Daniel says, I understood not, O Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Daniel, go thy way, for thy words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. I'm going to skip down now to the last verse, verse 13. But go thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of thy days. One more time. Daniel, what do you need to do? Because he's, he's begging, oh God, tell me what to do right now with all of this. Go thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the, of, of the days. Daniel, There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of judgment that's planned for this earth. But as for you personally, just go your way until the end. In other words, go live your life, Daniel, and die. (laughs) Just go do your thing. Go do your thing and die when it's your time because at the end, you're going to rest. There's a rest planned for you. And you'll also stand. It's not just rest. But you'll also stand in the place that God has appointed for you. This is the same promise that God gives to all people who believe in Him. Just go your life. Go, go live your life for Jesus. And He'll make sure that you stand in your lot at the end of the days. The word lot, by the way, real quick as we end. The word lot is the same word that's used in the book of Joshua. When Joshua was dividing up the land of Israel to all the different tribes. You get your lot, you get your lot, you get your lot, you get your lot. Each tribe got their own inheritance. Each tribe got their turf. This is what God promises to Daniel. I've got some turf up here waiting for you, Daniel. I've got your lot already waiting. So you go do your thing and you're going to rest and then you're going to stand in your lot that I've been get prepared for you. And every believer has a lot with their name on it. And that's what, that is our great hope. That is our great hope this morning. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for the confidence, Lord, that you have a home prepared for us. And oh, Lord, as we see these days unfolding, oh, Lord, help us to like never before reach out and help somebody come to you. Help us to be wise and turn people to righteousness during these dark days. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Lord bless you.